Hello and welcome to Trees Dropping at the Movies. I'm Mike. And I'm Jose. And today we're talking about Hook, the 1991 pirate action adventure sort of adaptation reimagining of Peter Pan. Uh, directed by Steven Spielberg, that I watched when I was a kid a hundred thousand times and I loved it and it's a real big part of my childhood. And the reason that I always wanted to watch this for the podcast was ever since we watched the Errol Flynn Robin Hood, because so much of the action in that made me think about the action in Hook and, and the kind of the sets and the visual design and stuff, they seem so evocative. And so I wanted to kind of, you know, I wanted to relive that in some sense for the podcast. There's a shot in uh, Hook that is a direct steal from the Michael Curtiz uh, Robin Hood. And that's the bit where Robin Hood goes into the evil guy, Basil... Rathbone. Rathbone, yeah. Uh, and he goes into the castle and they begin the sword play. And you see the sword play projected against the wall in shadows. Mm. And then they come into the shot, yeah? yeah. So there's, there's, all, there's an identical shot of that in Hook. So you're quite right. I mean, it's... It's a direct influence uh, yeah. uh, on this film. Absolutely. There's a lot of shadow play in this. And that's all that's all there in the original Peter Pan as well. Actually, I don't know if it's in... Because I never read the book, but I saw the, the, the Disney animated one from the 50s or 60s. Um, mm. And there's all the thing in that about Peter Pan and his shadow. And they interact with each other. Uh, and that mm. happens in this as well at one point. So the idea of kind of the shadow playing off the real people... Is something that happens here quite a lot, and there's there's an awful lot of the shadow kind of revealing something that the people don't necessarily know about themselves, particularly Peter Pan, because the idea in this is Peter Pan has in fact grown up. He's been out of Never Neverland for many many years. He's grown up and he has a family, and he doesn't remember that he's Peter Pan. His name is now Peter Banning, and he's a corporate lawyer in America, and he's a and he's a, a pirate. That's kind of the idea. He's become a pirate now, and he has to remember who he is. And he's played by Robin Williams, who I think is wonderful, and he's so evocative, and he gets, I think he gets a tone ready. And why, you know, when I watched it back, I thought, it's so obvious in so many ways that this is not a very good film. It's not. <laughs> but it also, it's also, ve I think it's a very good kids film, because it's kind of chunky, and colourful, and imaginative, and it has so many parts, even though they don't cohere necessarily all that well particularly with the lost boys that i remember so fondly and still read you know all, all those feelings come back to me when i watch them the food fight at the dinner table is probably the best one because it's fairly extraneous it's about peter pan remembering how to use his imagination and becoming a kid again so it makes sense but it's a little bit it feels a little bit unnecessary or a little bit just not that tied in that well with the rest of the film but it works for me still you know okay well what i'd like to do now is tell you a little bit of what I remember uh, about the film as it was being produced and when it came out. So I saw it when it came out. Mm. Yeah, I, I used to be an avid reader of Premiere, which no longer exists, but which was the big popular film magazine in the US at that period. And one of the things that it was really good at is it would cover the industry. Yeah, it would cover like productions while they were making and, it, you know, it was like a a kind, I wouldn't say in, investigative reporting, but it was good journalism about cinema. Yeah, uh, They took their time with it. 
and this was one of those fiasco productions, one of those out of control productions, right? Mm. You know, so I think the film had tried to be, there was a project to make it in the 80s and it didn't come through. And then it was seen as a project for Spielberg. Spielberg, you know, at that time, everything he touched turned golden. And, you know, certainly everything was successful. And then I remember reading about the film that the problems really kind of began when it became this huge star production, really, you know. So it's not only that it had Robin Williams and Dustin Hoffman, um, though I understand they were on a percentage basis, yeah, kind of. So right. so they, they didn't get paid. They just got, I think it was like 40% of the profits or something. Um, but then Julia Roberts, who was the hottest thing in cinema, came into the picture, uh, and I think she got paid, you know, a bomb outright. So it's a film whose budget doubled, yeah, uh, in the course of the production. It went, you know, I think uh, it had a certain kind of amount of shooting days, and then that almost doubled as well, which was, you know, very unusual for Spielberg, right? I can tell you it's, it had a 76-day shooting schedule and went 40 days over that. Okay, there you go. And this is what you were hearing in the press and so on, right? So when the film came out, it was perceived as a disappointment for everybody. So actually, it was one of the big hits of the year, one of the top 10 hits of the year, right? You know, both in the US and abroad. It, it turned a huge profit. And nonetheless, it was seen as a film that was both a failure financially, yeah, and also a failure critically, right? Mm. And I think that's one of the interesting things. Certainly, I saw it, and I didn't love it at all. I thought it was like typical Spielberg. I thought it was schmaltzy and overly sentimental. And actually, you know, one of the things that I really loved that I hadn't noticed the first time is just how beautifully it's shot. Mm. Yeah. All of the opening scenes, particularly the scenes with uh, Maggie Smith. Yeah. It has a density of image, of texture, right? It's like, you know, kind of 35 millimeter cinematography or whatever at its best. It's celluloid at its best. Yeah, you kind of, you have this dense, deep textures. It's beautifully lit, right? It's kind of just a joy to see. Um, and actually, it's those scenes that I truly love in the film and that I think I really appreciate for the first time. Uh, as soon as he goes out the window, you know, and goes into Neverland, it's like... <laughs> yeah. So now you tell me what you love about it. Well, I love that too, that, that start of the film. And it's funny because when you hear Spielberg talk about it, he always talks about, he always accepts that this film is a failure. And he says things like, one day I'll watch this film and I'll find something to love in it. And you go like, the first 20 minutes, and actually he also talks about the first 20 minutes are what he's proud of. And the kind of epilogue, uh. I suppose, where you, you return to London, to Granny Wendy's house. And you can see why, because the film sets up a, a real mood and it is shot so beautifully. And, and the, the, the set design there is, is kind of so beautiful. And the way that the tension of the um, return home and they find that the kids aren't there and the glass has been broken and what's happened, it's a really evocative scene, really evocative sequence. But he also says that if you were to make the film today, all of the stuff in Neverland would have been done on digital backlight, it would have been done on green screen, like like Marvel movies and so on. I'll say like Tintin, actually Tintin was completely CGI. But, and I, I read that and I thought, no, that's completely the wrong thing. Because one of the things that I really love about the Neverland segment of the film, which is the body of the film, is that the, the sets feel like playgrounds. They're real and they're big and you get these wide shots that show you the whole thing. You see the entirety 
of uh, the, the kind of pirate cove where Hook's ship is. And you see the entirety of the kind of central area of the Lost Boys sort of treetop village. And these places feel real and chunky and imaginative. And, you know, like the fact that it, it is simple things like, like the trees are painted a different colour. Or, uh, you know, there's, there's a kind of a ripped sheets hanging and stuff. And you feel like, oh, we imagine how much more imaginative that could be. But actually to a kid, that's it's evocative enough. It feels like something you can actually inhabit. And that's what's so beautiful about that. I agree. And I, and I disagree with Spielberg about that. I mean, I hate green screen. And one of the things that I hate about green screen is it digitizes everything so that almost nothing can be tied to human physical bodily embodied action right so this is a set you know when you see them kind of going down the mast or whatever it's real people going down the mast right and that's important you you feel it yeah yeah um though, though i do think all those action sequences are very badly shot they're not exciting to watch i think so as well and i also think they're quite badly choreographed uh when you see the sword play between pan and hook at the end of the film um, you know, it's clear that these are not proficient stunt performers. You know, it is Hoffman and and uh, Williams doing it themselves. Apart from the bit where you know you'll get like uh, Pan does a, a flip or something, and obviously that's a stunt guy. And then you come back to Williams, but the actual swordplay is is very, very kind of bog standard, unimaginative swords clashing. But on the other hand, that never bothered me as a kid. You know, I mean, it really made me think about how kids watch films and how much yeah. do kids pay attention to things because. Um, all the things that I remember, the, there are all these moments that I actually, I actually remember the scenes uh, quite well because I, I, th- I must have watched films so much. But uh-huh. there are these moments in them that I remember. So, like the little fat kid rolling down the plank, you know, holding his legs up, yeah. like that is a moment that is stuck in my mind. That's a mo- and I and I smile again when I see it. There are all these bits like that, and so. If, from an adult perspective, this is something very unsatisfying, but it really, really works for children, I think. Or, I, I, well, maybe I can't speak too broadly. It really, really worked for me as a child. Um, yeah. And I'm kind of trying to trying to think about why. The things that I think about now that I didn't see when I was a kid is the entire emotional kind of through line for Peter and why the story works for him, yeah. which I think it does, which is that the film is all about growing up and all about the sacrifices that that means but also the things that you gain. And so the whole thing is he's forgotten who he is and isn't that a tragedy? And then, but he can't fly. He needs to learn how to fly so he can fight Captain Hook and get his kids back. And in order to fly, he needs a happy thought. And the central emotional point of the film is that he realises that his happy thought is when he grew up and became a father. And that's a brilliant concept, I think, for the film. And that's a brilliant way of tying it all together. That actually growing up means something, it means loss, but it also means you gain something. He changes as a person, and so like he's he's lost all of that youth, he's lost all that imagination, but he gains something that really matters and becomes who he is. I read that slightly differently, so I know what you mean, and I agree. I mean, there's a moment where he says, you know, he said he tells his his boy, you know, my happy thought is you, right? So it's very direct, yeah. And on the one hand, I thought, okay, you know, that's nice, you know, but. <laughs> <laughs> but then I have my little queer devil and, you know, and I think, oh, this is so heterosexist, you know. It's like, couldn't you have a happy thought without a fucking child? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I know. But I suppose it, 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 may, it does feel like that is the way, certainly the way it's configured in the film, that that is kind of, that's like a hinge on which your life turns, I suppose. You know, you were a child, now you have a child, and life is different because of that. And I can understand that. 
you know, but I think it has a slightly different resonance in the film because it's not just about your life changing and so on, right? It is like that this feeling of euphoria, of flying, of imagination, etc., you know, hinges on this the happy thought, which really I think the happy thought is just about love, right? Yeah, it's kind of, mm. you know, uh, 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 love is kind of what makes you happy, loving, yeah, um, you know, so, uh, and, it, and it's also hope and everything, is, but that all of those things are embodied in a child, mm. I find a problem, you know, I mean, that, you know, that you need to have a child to have an imagination, really. <laughs> yeah. <it's laughs> well, I think that, that's kind of not it, though, is it? It's like, because having, having a child... Well, I suppose it's complicated, because it's not so much that having a child is what robs him of his imagination. It's his job and 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 um, what that kind of represents that robs him of his imagination, because he doesn't actually see his kids all that much. He works so hard uh, when, when he's a corporate lawyer and he doesn't know who he is. But then there is this conflict. Like, I, it's kind of interesting to me that... After he remembers that he's Peter Pan, he's constantly having to remind himself what his priorities are because when he yes. when he re becomes Peter Pan, he starts playing again, and there's that scene where he sticks his face in on Tink's house in the clock, and he's going, "Oh, let's play, let's play," and she has to basically remind him that he has kids. Yes, you know, so like that. There's a funny thing where people are always talking about forgetting throughout the film. You've forgotten who you are. Yes, and there's a whole thing about remembering that he's Peter Pan. But it's there's a subtlety to it where it always feels like forgetting is a cost of learning things. You know, he re-remembers that he's a, that he's this magic kid again, but that means forgetting everything else that was great about his life, and it's, and it's in then re-remembering that he has kids and that he loves his kids that he becomes a kind of complete Peter Pan who can fly again. And it's yes, it's interesting. It, it is interesting, um, and you've put it really well, actually. Uh, and also the other point that I thought you put really well is that I want to underline because I hadn't thought of it is that he has now become a pirate at the beginning mm. of the film. He is a corporate pirate. You know, that's kind of like an interesting um, concept that I hadn't quite picked up on. Yeah, because Granny Wendy says it to him specifically. And then later on, when he first meets the Lost Boys, Rufio, the de facto leader of the Lost Boys, says we kill pirates, all grown-ups are pirates. Mm. So in Neverland, that is, you know, you're a kid and you're a good guy, you're a grown-up and you're a pirate. Yeah. What do you think of um, Dustin Hoffman? I have mixed feelings about him, right? Because there are, there are moments where he does these gestures and he's just brilliant, right? You know, and, and I think he's mostly brilliant. But let me tell you what I really hated and that I think ruins his performance. And that's his English accent. Oh, really? You don't like his accent? No. I mean, he does it terrible. Uh, and also, it lends a different air to the film. And, you know, it's a real beef with me because one of the things that the film does is it really sentimentalizes English culture, right? Mm. You know, so it, it begins in this picture book, you know, Big Ben, London, you know, with these, like, beautiful houses and paintings, oil paintings on the wall. And you think, you know, this is like Spielberg's experience of England, right? It's just like $7 million houses <laughs> that are cozy and have fireplaces and, you know, and so on. And then also, you know, the pirate, because you think, well, 
why does a pirate have to have an English accent, right? Like, you know, uh, yeah, there's no need for it, really. Like, you know, Burt Lancaster, when he played a pirate, never had one. Like, you know, there were many types of pirates. You could be a Spanish pirate or a Turkish pirate or whatever. Yeah, I mean, he could just have used his own accent. So, and every, every time... So, I think his facial gestures and so on are sometimes brilliant and brilliantly theatrical and so on. Right. In some ways, it's a great performance. But then vocally, it falters because, you know, you keep paying attention to all of the things that he mispronounces. Right. Or he pronounces badly or, you know, where the accent kind of falls off or actually sometimes where the accent lends a phoniness to the performance. That's not just theatrical stylization. Yeah, that is a kind of a phoniness, really, uh, you know, because you can be theatrical and true. Right. But I, I think a lot of it hinges on his voice. So I have mixed feelings about uh, Dustin Hoffman. Yeah. I don't um, know if I agree with you about his voice, because it never occurred to me for a second that his voice was a problem. And, uh, and again, this is something that's kind of been a fixture of my image of this film is his kind of bring me Peter Pan. You know? But it never really occurred to me that he's trying to do an English accent. It always seemed to me much more idiosyncratic and individual. Uh, sort oh, it's, of, sort it's, of voice. A, it's a it's an English accent. <laughs> well, I don't know. It's obviously not his his real accent, but it, and and you're right. Maybe maybe it could just be an English accent that's very failed. But I honestly think that they're going for something, going for some a different sound in it. There's something mid Atlantic to it, and you may say, well, that's because he's failing to do an English accent, and his American accent is coming through. That's never how I took it. It's his idea. It's his idea of an English accent. That may be the case, but there's some parts where it's so obviously not. You know, where he says like the boo box. You know, the, uh, the, when he puts Glenn Close's cameo pirate in the boo box with the scorpions, he goes the boo box. That's such an American pronunciation, and it always seems so obvious that that's this this conception of Hook. This is the sound of his voice. He's an he's well, a, an individual. That's how I always took well, it, and I never had a problem with that. Well. That's interesting because obviously you're English and I'm not. Um, but to me, the attempt at an English accent is a obvious, and b it has particular connotations as well. Mm. You know, uh, uh, in North American culture, it's always kind of seen as like, you know, kind of classy and cultured, and you know, so, so, I, I hated. I mean, you know, Dustin Hoffman's voice in itself is always kind of a problem, you know, because he's got this very, he's got this very nasal voice. Yeah. Mm. So, um, a very distinctive voice, uh, but you know, you can pick it out immediately and it's very nasal. Right. So, so it's something that I, at least am always aware of in relation to him. Uh, and, and I, th I thought it was a mistake. Yeah. Yeah, I thought it was a mistake to try to do an English accent. Uh, often, very few Americans do it well anyway. Uh, and it's just a trap, really. And it's an unnecessary one. I, you know, the character need not have been English, right? I mean, you know, just because the book is English doesn't mean that the character has to be kind of mm. English. I mean, you know, uh, 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 Robin Williams isn't, right? Like, I know. Well, there were some very fun negotiations that go around making him American because they go, they go into some detail about Peter's backstory about how he was born in England, kind of upper class English society, and lost as a baby and taken to Neverland by Tink, and then when he was adopted at the age of twelve or so 
by an American family, that's obviously when he will have become American, even though the fact that when you're 12, your accent is probably fairly uh, sort of ingrained. So whatever, you know, so it's, it's a bit silly that he became so American after that. But you just yeah. you go with it, you buy it, you know, that's how, that's how they've got Robin Williams to work in the film, you know. Sure. Well, you know, and, and, and we forget that at the time, he was such a huge star, right? Like, I'm sure there were lots of negotiations involved in, you know, getting him involved in the project, right? Uh, and it definitely was a real coup. Uh, and I'm sure, you know, the combination of him and Robin Williams in that period and definitely uh, Julia Roberts is, you know, what accounted for the, the, the very considerable box office success that the film had. More than considerable, huge, really. Yeah, like, mm. you know, I mean, it was like, you know, the top 10 in America and the top 10 worldwide. So, you know, one of the huge hits of the year. Yeah. I'm just trying to see actually what the top 10 is from that year because I'm interested. Um, so top grossing film that year is Terminator 2, made about $500 right. million. Then Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, another uh, a similar one. Then Beauty and the Beast. And then Hook is fourth. Well, yeah. well I mean, that's an amazing success, right? The fourth yeah. biggest hit of the year and, and regarded as a, as a failure, right? Yeah. And it didn't even cost that much. I mean, you know, I mean, in relation to Terminator 2, you know, it, it cost like a third or, or a half. Yeah, Hook's budget came in at something like $70 million in the end, uh, which was, Terminator 2 was about $100 million. So there you go. Yeah, so a very big hit, yeah, and, and largely due to the stars, I think. Um, yeah, and um, all of the sentimentality, I'm sure you were scoffing at throughout... Well, you know, I don't have a heart of steel. I am well, vulnerable to those things. I don't think you even have a heart, Jose. <laughs> the film is very manipulative. <laughs> Do you think it's dishonest in the way it gets feelings out of you? Yes. Okay. I, I think that's true of Spielberg. I mean, and this is why, you know, I, I, I don't... Well, obviously, I rate him, and he's done some of the films that I truly love, but I, I think through most of his career, he doesn't have a good understanding of what it is to be human, right? It's all a movie understanding. It's all cliches. It's all mm. like, you know, uh, there, there's nothing kind of contradictory or, I mean, you know, imagine if like Robin Williams had had failures in this film that were just, that, that were beyond loving his kids. I mean... You know, uh, he doesn't have a rounded view of what it is to be human, which, you know, sometimes means that you have desires and so on that are not socially acceptable, right? I mean, this film is all very clear cut. You know, you love your children. He's not paying attention to his children. Then, you know, he learns how to pay attention to his children. But without any of the complications or messiness, you know, that kind of we all feel in relation to those things. So I think, uh, um, yeah. Do you think it's painted in broader strokes? Do you think it's fairer to, for the film? if this is deliberate, do you think it's fairest for the film to have been painted in broader strokes because it's aimed at a younger audience that may not appreciate the complexities? I don't have a problem with that, but, you know, even the kids, I mean, you could have had one that was mean, you know, <laughs> or, yeah, or whatever. Yeah, like, it really is a conception of life and so on that operates in a very limited emotional register. Yeah, and a, and a very limited conceptualization of what it is to be human. Even what it is to be a kid, 
You know, mm. like, I mean, none of the kids are unreasonable. They, none of them go scream for no reason. You know, none of them kick each other. Yeah. Or... You mean his two children or the kids throughout the film, the Lost Boys as well? The, the Lost Boys. The, the, none of them bully each other for no reason. Well, there is, you know? there is Rufio. Rufio is an interesting character because he because he's become the leader of the Lost Boys since Peter's not been there for so long. And then his, his status is being challenged by this return of this guy who is supposed to be Peter Pan. He feels threatened and he, he kind of acts out and he's not really having it. And obviously he comes around in the end, he realises that this is really Peter Pan. But um, there's it's very striking that his status means a lot to him. And when the other kids start to um, believe in Peter Pan, he feels really torn up by that. He hates that. Which is which is interesting, and I suppose it, it's necessary to give the film a kind of an extra villain there. Because imagine if he weren't there, really, how how those scenes would play. You know, I think you do need that to play against. And because I mean, the other part of that, which I think is kind of interesting, is that Peter uh, is basically the only one who's in agreement with Rufio <laughs> that he's not Peter yes. Pan. And there's that wonderful moment yes. where he draws the line in the dirt, and he says, "If you don't believe this guy's Peter Pan, step over the line." And Peter's the only one who does it at the start, which is a great little joke. Uh, 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 you know, it is. <laughs> Um, but I know what you mean. There is, there is, there is something. Yeah, you know, I mean, none of the other kids basically um, have anything to separate them. Like they, they, one of them's fatter, and one of them's very much younger. But they're all basically the same kid, apart from that. I mean, it's interesting, right? Because you saw the Crimson Pirates recently, which you did not like, uh, and. You know, to me, everything about the Crimson Pirate is a million times better than in this film. <laughs> I mean, you know, just to watch the way that Burt Lancaster, you know, flies down a mast. It's yeah. just like physically thrilling. This film offered so many opportunities to do that, right? You know, kind of none of them are taken, you know, and it has kind of all of these distinctive characters about, you know, what it means to be a pirate and, you know, and so on. And, you know, that are memorable, right? And you think, well, Spielberg in those sequences, you know, could have done that, right? Mm. You could have highlighted some, yeah, and made jokes and kind of, you know, given motivation and made people evil or bad or, you know, giving them uh, selfish reasons to kind of not follow the rules that are set. Or there's just, there's so many things, you know, that are not kind of, that haven't even been thought of. Uh, in relation to to this film, and so I find all of those scenes um, very disappointing. I suppose that um, the action and the stunt work has never ever been what I've loved about Hook, uh, despite uh. the fact I remember parts of it. As I said, it's never been the thing that I focus on. And you know, so Errol Flynn and uh, Burt Lancaster may have had the action ability and, and action instincts that Robin Williams doesn't. He's not an action person. But, you know, can they can they grab at your heart the way that Robin Williams does? I'm not so sure. That's what I love about this film. Well, I'm, I wasn't referring to that, and I wasn't trying to make a comparison between Robin Williams and Burt Lancaster. That would be ludicrous. No, no. I'm saying that I think that is where the films are actually different, and their focus is different. But I think there, were, there are other things. So, you know, kind of, the Crimson Pirate is full of all of these jokes. And you could have had, you know, you could have, put that in there right and a lot of the jokes are physical so you know you could have put that in there right like you know the chase sequences to me in the crimson pirate are funny right like hiding behind the boat blah 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 you know i mean either there's this whole scope of things that could have been you know in that sequence that i think are missed really and what i liked most about the film 
which I think is, is worth saying. So I've already mentioned the opening sequences, which I, I just think, I mean, to me, that must be amongst the best work that Spielberg's done. I mean, it, it looks so beautiful. And it's so beautifully filmed, and it sets this, this lovely tone. Um, but also there are fantastic images, you know, which, mm. again, I think I hadn't really picked up on at the beginning, right? You know, so those scenes with Peter looking into Tinkerbell's house, yeah, I mean, there there are kind of, you know, quite astounding kind of images uh, in the film that, uh, you know, I kind of, I, I really appreciate it for the first time uh, on this rewatch. Um, and um, I love Julia Roberts. I mean, I love mm -hmm. Julia Roberts in general, but, you know, she was really damned for this film. Yeah, kind of, uh, uh, the critics kind of killed her for it. And I think she's lovely. Yeah, you know, she's got a real movie star glow, you know, and then her performance is very good. And that, you know, that little thing that she does with her feet, yeah, which is like a little bit of a bow or something, uh, uh, it's just lovely, right? I think she's enchanting uh, in the film. Um, so I just wanted to highlight that. <laughs> yeah, something that was interesting, which I don't remember because, well, I have, again, I haven't read the books, so I don't rem know how 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 much of an invention it is, but she is in love with Peter in this. Yes. And it's just kept to herself apart from that one point as she says it, but it's it's just it's just her own little private story that she wishes she could have Peter. She loathes the fact that she can't, she wishes she were full size. She just wants a kiss from him because she saw him kiss uh Moira, you know, in bed. Which is it's a really touching just like intimate, tiny little subplot that's all all her own. And you feel it, once you know that, you kind of see it every moment that she's looking at Peter, almost. The other thing that I wanted to pick on, to ask your opinion, is the score. Because oh. I, really dis I really dislike it. Oh, really? I do. The score is absolutely iconic to me. Like if I, this is the I'm not I'm really not trained to listen to scores in films, particularly older films. So when I listen to scores that are supposed to be absolutely great in films, like like scores by um you know Nino Rota or someone like that from films from the forties and fifties and sixties, I just never really hear what other people hear in them because they all just somehow sound the same to me. And I know yeah. that's ignorant and uneducated and all the rest. That's 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 just how I I never I never feel that special. And John Williams obviously. Um, is well known for using uh, kind of light motifs, and he has these great themes. and the, And the themes in this film are iconic to me. I recognise them. I know them. And so when uh, Hook shows up, or before he shows up, and the music comes in, you know Hook's coming. It's also I also love how it's in that scene in particular. It's used almost diegetically. It's as though the whole crowd of pirates anticipating Hook can hear him because they can hear the music because they're all going Hook, 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 and it all plays together. And I think it's used brilliantly. Um, so no, I mean, I, 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 I've always adored the music in this, and it always gets the right feelings in me going. You know, I always, yeah. I always feel that. Well, I suppose what you like about it is what I dislike. Mm. Yeah, that it's kind of it's overly obvious that it underlines, right? You know, that it's schmaltzy. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So that 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 it does, kind of. Uh, I forget what the term is when the music is. Is doing the work of of you know getting the emotion from you that really kind of the scene itself should be doing. It's kind of underlining everything. Mm. I forget what the technical term is, but you know I think it, it was. I'm not sure there is a technical term for that. I think it's just that's if you've just described it. I'm not sure there is a term for it. Yeah. Well, um, 
and I noticed that very much, right? Mm. You know, that kind of, it's exactly the way that you describe it, but I saw it as a negative, right? Yeah. You know, that kind of, you know, in advance of, of the scene, you're already being told what to feel by the music, right? And then the scene comes on, yeah, and you're meant to feel it, right? So I thought I kind but of... Do you feel the like same that. way, this is another John Williams one, but do you feel the same way about Star Wars, the Empire music, you know? Uh, well, that's different for me, you know, again, just because uh, um, it's it's so iconic. I mean, I suppose it is. I find it really rousing and fun and, mm. you know, da, 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 da. so, but, but, you know, maybe it is also doing that. I mean, I can't say really, but, and certainly the score for Jaws, which I love, would be doing the same thing, mm. you know, um, so, but I, I think this was more more heavy-handed, more directive, you know, uh, uh, than, than in those films. Um, yeah, I, I kind of... <laughs> I think it may, I think there may be an element of personal response to it because, uh, honestly, I think there's, there can be no more a kind of emotionally directive uh, score than the Imperial March from Empire Strikes Back, you know, and you know the Emperor's coming and stuff. So, but it's because, but it's because you love it and you know it and it just fits. That's how I feel about Hook. I know the music and I love it and it fits and I know how it all works together. Um, Okay. No, fair enough. I mean, you know, you can't argue with, with, with people's feelings really. Uh, But I thought it was like really heavy handed and syrupy. Uh, But, you know, I mean, just to get back because I'm making it sound like, you know, I hated the film and actually I, I don't. I enjoyed it. But, you know, to me, it's not a great film. It's a film that really typifies all of Spielberg, all the problems that I associate with Spielberg. And and also some of the virtues, really. Though, you know, kind of surprising. Because, you know, one of the things that I always uh, um, give credit to Spielberg for is he's a genius with space and action, really. Mm. And actually, some of the major problems in this film have to do with space and with action. Really, you know, the whole scene in this pirate ship, you know, it's kind of, it's, it's, it's not very well done. And it's not exciting. And the action sequences are, you know, not dull, but, you know, but certainly not imaginative. Yeah? Yeah. Um, so, so, so it's a really interesting thing in relation to kind of Spielberg, I think. But I want to underline you know, before we wrap up, just how beautiful the film is to look at, right? I mean, the lighting is just kind of sublime, like, uh, again, in the opening sequences. And I was really struck by that. And I was really struck by Maggie Smith, who gives a very restrained performance. I mean, it took me a while to recognize that it was Maggie Smith. It was only, you know, as she began to talk. She's filmed very beautifully, and, and she's made to look both beautiful and elegant, right? Like, you know, she wears extraordinary clothes and she wears them like a model, really. <laughs> um, yeah, she does. Yeah, kind of, you know, when she puts that outfit on to for dinner, right? Kind of, it's, it's, really, it's really lovely, yeah. Um, it looks gorgeous. Um, and she, and her performance and style kind of emotionally ground the whole opening, Really, because it's yeah, you know, she's this Granny Wendy, and she's this iconic figure to the whole family, and that introduction that she gets, standing, you know, all the hubbub going on downstairs. Oh, hello, you're in London, ah, and then she stood at the top of the stairs in moonlight, yeah. and she says, "Hello, boy." Oh, God, it's beautiful, and and the whole mood changes when she turns up. You know, she's yeah. got a great entrance, and I think Hook has a great entrance as well. 
you know, yeah. where there's all the anticipation, then he comes out and you still don't see his face. And Smee yeah. says, Smee says, they love you, something like that. And he says, oh, they're snivelling. And that's when you see his face. It's like, <laughs> Great, that's what I want. You know? <laughs> so, yeah, I think there's a lot to love with this film, and I'll keep loving it. But, um, yeah, it's, it's far from a perfect film. But I think that, you know, if I ever have kids, this is the film I'm going to make them watch. Okay, we'll summarise that, because I think we haven't highlighted that enough. So if you could just kind of, you know, um, summarise all the things that you love about it. All the things that I love. Well, I love the feeling of playfulness. I love the feeling of solidarity to the world. I love the I love the colour and the chunkiness. And I love the simplicity in some respects. You know, I love the fact that it, it's only as I got older and watched the film again that I saw certain subtleties. And actually, it's only really when I got older that I realised exactly where the emotional core of the film is and how much I love that. The thing about growing up, having kids, that's where his happiness comes from. You know, it's explicit. It's said to you right out. But as a kid... I never picked up on that when I was eight years old. You know, I never looked at that. I looked at the food fight when I was eight years old and I had a really good time with it. You know, and I always remembered Hook. I always remembered how how much fun he was and what a great character and the bit where he tries to shoot himself and his interplay with Smee, I think, is wonderful. Jack's relationship with his dad as well is something that I always got attached to. And his relationship with his dad is much more important than the daughter's relationship with his, with her dad. Um, you know, she's kind of sidelined. It's all about the seeking Jack's affection and Hook trying to steal Jack's affection. That's why I always loved as well. Though, you know, again, that can be seen as a problem on its own. Yeah. You know, that, um, because, you know, I mean, the film in many ways is very um, girl-centered. Yeah. Sorry, the, the story is very girl-centered, right? Kind of, you know, uh, it is about Wendy and, and Tinkerbell and so on, and also about Peter. Um, you know, and actually it's interesting that, you know, Peter theatrically, you know, uh, is usually played by a woman, right? You know, so kind of Mary Martin had a huge success in, you know, the 50s on Broadway doing it. There were kind of, you know, several national broadcasts. Uh, you know, P Peter Pan is a childhood staple for kids who grew up in America in the 1950s through these, you know, productions where you had a woman playing Peter Pan, and that was also part of the, you know, tradition theatrically in Britain, right? And now, yeah, here we have kind of a film that basically sidelines women, really. You know, uh, they're pretty much insignificant. Uh, I think that's true of Tinkerbell. I think that's true of the wife. I think it's true of the daughter. You know, the only one who kind of gets given the, a moment, really, is Maggie Smith. And, of course, you know, she's at the beginning and at the end, but really extraneous to yeah, all of mm. all, all the rest of the film. So, just a thought. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure it's a thought I entirely agree with, but I think ultimately the central relationship is uh, Jack and Peter's father-son relationship. That's the one that it hinges on. Which is, again, an interesting conception. You can imagine somebody else doing this film and making it about a father's relationship with his children, not just his son. Right. Yeah. Uh, or you can imagine a different film in which kind of the wife has an equal set of concerns. After all, the relationship is at risk, you know, but the film doesn't seem to really care that much about, it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> the thing is, <laughs> the thing is, is focused on the sun. Yeah. And obviously that's what you love about it. But I'm just saying that there are also problems with that. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think the daughter to some extent is used as a certain amount of comic relief actually because she's yeah. just so she has such undying love for her parents and she knows that you know she'll be saved and so on and um, 
and you feel, and you know, at the end when she says, "You, you need a mommy very, very badly," and it's like, yeah, yeah, that's basically her entire attitude is, is <laughs> <laughs> this, uh, wonderful moment. One last thing, wonderful, wonderful moment that really made me laugh. That made me laugh when I was a kid as well, where. Um, Peter first tries to save his kids when he doesn't know he's Peter Pan and doesn't know how to fly. And he tries climbing the mast and he has a real problem with heights and he can't do it. And they're reaching out because Hook says, if you just touch them, then I'll let them go and you can't do it. And she's reaching out, the girl, and she says, mommy would do it. Like, oh, <laughs> that's not going to make you feel. <laughs> All right. So let's wrap this up. Um, I, I enjoyed it very much and came out with a renewed appreciation of the opening sequences. Uh, it's a very interesting film in relation to Spielberg's career, so if you're interested in it, it's a film to see. I, I still had the problems that I remembered uh, with much of the film, you know, particularly all of uh, the scenes in Neverland, really. But uh, I'm very glad I saw it again, and it looks much more beautiful than I remembered, you know, which is mm. another reason to see it. There you go. All right. Uh, well, uh, thank you very much for listening. We are eavesdropping at the movies, and we are on. Apple Podcasts, uh, Spotify, SoundCloud, and YouTube. On social media, we're on Facebook and Twitter, and the website is eavesdroppingatthemovies.com. Thank you very much for listening. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.